Welcome to the Razor Show with the Athletics' Nick Underhill and Jeff Powell, plus three-time Super Bowl champion Matt Chatham. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the very first edition of the Razor Show. It's myself, Jeff Howe, along with Nick Underhill and Matt Chatham. We are debuting a brand new podcast that you are going to hear throughout the season, hopefully twice a week. And uh, we're excited about it, so we hope you guys are too. We'll, we'll intro ourselves a little bit here. I mean, I have been covering the Patriots now since 2009. It's my second season with The Athletic in Boston. And uh, look, I'm jacked up for this. This is going to be what we are calling the, the audio version of what we bring to you guys in, in terms of the written word on a daily basis. We don't want to be like every other podcast. We want to give you a unique viewpoint of how we see the team, any analysis we see, anything that we can do that is going to be different or at least uh, just a better version of the coverage that you are all expecting from us. Again, hopefully as much as twice a week. So Nick, why don't you tell everybody about yourself? Yeah, I mean, some people might be surprised by things, but we follow teams and see things coming. So (laughs) definitely not going to be caught off guard by anything. Uh, You know, I covered the team for four years before, then went down to New Orleans for the last five seasons, and I'm I'm back here. Uh, You know, it's just nice to have that perspective from from other teams. And I know coming back, I definitely appreciate everything we saw during training camp a lot more. you know, just seeing the fundamentals of the Patriots and, and different things like that. It's just it's just been illuminating to, to have that step away and come back and just see how much different and how much more pristine they go about doing things. And, you know, we're going to keep our eyes open. We're charting everything. We keep our training camp stats. We're going to do a lot of stuff throughout the season, chart coverage. You know, we're just going to cover the hell out of the team and then bring it here and talk about it. Yeah, guys, this is Matt Chatham. I think one of the fun things I was looking for with this show is, you know, Jeff and I have been joking about this for years. Uh, you know, he he and I kind of were like passing ships in the sea years ago at Nesson, uh, and then he was off to the Herald, and now the three of us end up here at the Athletic at the same time. And Jeff has done some podcasts. I've done some podcasts. We really liked it, and then Nick arrives in town, and it's like, oh, this is just the perfect timing to knock this thing out. And beyond that, we came up with a Razor show because Jeff has a sharp objects fetish. <laughs> and this has been going on for a while. So we really just had, how can we poss- how can we fucking possibly figure out a way to call something Razor show? So this was really the only way to do it. So I really appreciate Jeff for coming along. Yeah, I mean, thanks. Thanks for Catching me off guard. I know you've been working on that one for quite some time. It's on the, on the back of my hand right here. I was I was sitting here and I'm like, you know what? We're not going to explain why we came up with the name for the show because either you get it or you don't. And if you don't get it, I mean, now clearly we've uh, unburdened some skeletons in my closet. <laughs> this is a, a play off Gillette Stadium's, or one of Gillette Stadium's original nicknames, The Razor, as well as Dustin Pedroia's quote about the laser show a few years back. So we sort of just combined the two. And uh, that's the real reason, but you know, I know Matt's gonna have his version, so here we, here we are, and uh, oh, we're gonna have some fun. I mean, we're that's the other thing. I mean, Matt and I have known each other for a while. Matt, uh, Nick, and myself have known each other for basically a decade at this point, so we're all comfortable with each other. I mean, right now we're in Matt's house, uh, just tearing the place apart, <laughs> uh, running around with his dog, and having a good time. So that's you know, you're gonna get a laid back vibe from us too. So you do have like a habit of getting stopped at airport security. Is this to do with the sharp object (laughs) fetish or is this something else? I think they're just out to get me, man. I'm a law-abiding citizen who's often misunderstood. 
<laughs> well, I just like that there's the tie-in with Dustin Pedroia because naturally he's a slot receiver. I mean, <laughs> second baseman, short white guy. I mean, that's just it, it, the tie-in was was perfect. But no, I mean, I, from my view, guys, you know, as a, as a former player and a guy who's been now covering the team, shoot, as long as I played. Uh, so I, I really look forward to, in part, you know, the other show, the old Real Thing show that I did was very heavy analysis of the game, and sometimes our show would be 45 or 60 minutes of me running through virtually the entire thing. It doesn't have to be that now because now I can be tape guy, but I don't have to read back every play kind of thing. You're still going to get a crazy in-depth look from my part of it, but I also have two people in the room that I'm going to be relying upon as well because they're working the locker room. I'm doing my Nesson stuff, but it's more reacting to what those guys find out. Now we're in the room together. Now we get a little more insight on the whole deal. So we'll try to kind of blend all three of those things and uh, make it all one big happy sloppy show. So moving forward here and knock this thing out, we wanted to, you know, kind of make this a kickoff show. And, you know, my background with special teams, uh, I do not like just, you know, mailing in the kickoff. I don't like them booting it into the stands kind of thing. We, we want to make a real kickoff. So it's like I have a have a little something, a little meat on the bone here for the first show. So the three of us have been really working this this camp very, very hard. We've been there every day up on those hills. And these guys are there for media availabilities for the last month. Um, I kind of just wanted to go to you guys on biggest takeaways. I mean, you've covered so many training camps. I played in a bunch of them, covered a bunch of them. What's really the thing that stood out to you? Jeff, well, I'll start with you because you, you've seen so many of these Patriot camps to begin with. What's sort of the defining feature of this particular one? I love these camps. I mean, this is the best time of year to learn as much about the team as possible. And, yeah, I mean, I know there's a lot of interest this week because of the final preseason week and those final roster battles and – I'm not to you know not trying to diminish the 86th guy on the roster or anything like that. I mean, shoot, Rob Nikovich was once literally the 80th man on the roster before they expanded to 90. So every player matters, but let's start I think with the number one guy on the roster, and that's Tom Brady, the 42-year-old quarterback who physically still looks the part. You're still seeing a lot of zip on his throws. He hasn't really what he's played three preseason series. I really liked that throw that he delivered to the backside to Philip Dorsett by the sideline. I think that was one example that you can still see uh, the type of velocity and delivery that you need from Tom Brady in order for this team to be a Super Bowl contender or favorite, however you want to spin it. And he's had a good camp, and he's been, I don't want to say pushed, he's been, Brian Hoyer's had a good camp, Jarrett Stidham has blown away expectations, but Tom Brady is still sitting there setting the pace. And we've also seen, and Nick kind of pointed this out early in training camp, that you can sort of see a pattern with the way the Patriots are managing Tom Brady's summer reps, probably with the long term in mind. He's had about 220 competitive camp throws over the last two years. The two years prior to that, it was around 275. Nothing in Foxborough is Matt Nose's by coincidence. Mm -hmm. And it's just part of the long plan that you've got to implement when you have uncharted territory with a 42-year-old quarterback. How much do you guys read into going into the game, just Dorsett kind of coming out of nowhere, and he's the guy that's Brady's going to over and over again? I mean, are you looking at it going into week one, he's the number three guy, like immediately just because of that chemistry? I know last year they kind of tried to get away from him, it seemed like, after week two, and now he's kind of back from the, you know, I don't want to say from the dead, but like we're all talking about Jacoby Myers and you know, everybody else, and then all of a sudden, here's Dorsett right there, and is he the guy? Yeah, see, what I, one of my big, uh, I guess, sort of uh, string-around-the-finger kind of things from the last few camps with these guys 
is especially since I've been calling the games for preseasons, because you, you spend this entire, you spend a lot of time building the board, trying to think about targets, you know, watching the handful of series that happened and then looking into who got it and who didn't and trying to sort of use that and extrapolate forward in the regular season. It's really screwed me up, to be honest, over the years. Like it's really, there's been a lot of times where you'd start to feel like in that third preseason game, maybe a, a relationship build between player X and Tom. And then I, I just, so many times I've seen game one, game two, game three, that guy get two targets in, in, the, in the road game, in the third game of the season and go, well, damn it, he got 12 in the third preseason, you know, whatever it happens to be. So I, I've, kind of, I've kind of gotten away from, I, I, I've kind of have gone this route of thinking of preseason games as this long extended practice to try things, evaluate, try th- like as far as like working on things and I'll flip to the other side of the ball real quickly I-, I think the defense is a pretty good example of this like last week we saw uh, the Michael Bennett package right over center right uh, with everyone else up him just down uh, they blitzed a lot there was one particular series where they actually sent a six three times in a row and you almost never see that in the regular season so I don't take that and say okay that's how they'll be this year. I mean, obviously, logically, neither you guys. But I think, back to your original question about Philip Dorsett, I think it works a little the same as there. What would happen if Philip was our lead today? And that's kind of what that game was. Like, you know, so maybe this doesn't... Do, po- do you think it was that, though? Or was it Jacoby kind of well, had some mistakes yeah, and then Brady started looking someone else? That's a fair way. point. That's a fair point. But I th- And I think Tommy ha- really has a sort of a, a security blanket in Philip. You know, we know you're not going to get the 25-yard in- in cut. But you know that guy can run the hell out of a, of a ten yard curl or a, you know a, a comeback at the sticks. So I, I kind of get this sense that yeah, you're right. Maybe they pivoted, but once he did, it was like, well, let's feed him. Let's see what happens here. And and you know that might not be week six again until he's a lead target guy. And it might be by default because hey, they walk in with a game plan. They take the help. They take jewels away. Uh, Josh is maybe injured. I mean, I'm just making this up. So, so say you're you're. It's good to know where else you could turn in case of emergency. And camps really kind of help you with that. There was also a level of frustration that Brady had. A, I think, with the penalties. B, you mentioned Jacoby Myers. Uh, 0 for 3 when targeting Myers once he stopped on a road. Another time, you know, the throw was a little shaky, but it still hit Myers in the hand. Maybe that was because the route wasn't perfect. And another one was easily broken up. So you, you look at having two series that were basically sabotaged by penalties, and you want to make sure you get something on the board here knowing that that third series was probably the last one he was going to take in the preseason. So you go to a guy that you trust. You bring Edelman back. He's obviously your number one. Going into week one, depending on what happens behind closed doors the next 10 days or so with Josh Gordon, Demarius Thomas, and Nikhil Harry, who is clearly still not even close to 100%, you could see Philip Dorsett being that number two guy at the receiver position. I mean, James White could catch 10, 12 balls against the Steelers. but. This is a, uh, a guy who has always been very reliable. Last year was a little weird because it started with Dorsett and Hogan, and that was a huge prove-it type of moment for both of those guys. Hogan had some decent stats in that Week 2 Jaguars loss, but at that point the game was kind of out of hand. And then when they acquired Josh Gordon, Dorsett was kind of the guy who was... They filtered him down the depth chart more than anybody else. And then he kind of came back to life later in the season. So it's uh, it's weird because he was so consistent with Brady before Myers broke out in camp. He was contending for the lead in terms of connections with Brady over the course of those competitive practices. And then Myers blew up. And then he got the injury. So it could have been a mixture, like Matt was saying, you know, try some new things. It could have been chemistry stuff. It could have been just, hey, you know what? Let's make sure you get Dorsett back at it. 
after he missed some time in those competitive practices. Yeah, I, I don't want to make too much of it either because it is just one game, and we saw him make plays all summer against very good cornerbacks. So it's not even just like, oh, well, he can't make catches on James Bradbury. Like, he was making catches on, you know, all these corners that, that the Patriots have, and they're all much better than James Bradbury. So, you know, I know he kind of blamed, like, oh, well, I'm going against number one corners now, and I got to do better. Well, I don't know if I totally, like, I, I think it's okay. I think it was just a bad day. He'll probably bounce back. On the other hand, our evaluation of him probably as a whole was probably a little bit higher than it should have been, and there's a little bit of a correction taking place. It is a UDFA. He's not going to be a 1,000-yard receiver. You know, if he has 400 yards this year, I think that's Hell probably a, year. a solid yeah. year for him. Yeah, Yeah. one of the things that, that, that I, I like, beyond just how he caught six balls, he caught five balls, he caught three kind of thing, I like digging into where they're catching their routes, and I think that's kind of what Jacoby Myers is different. This And it's been a Stidham route, so it hasn't been something that he and Tommy have connected on. Uh, but I would be interested to see if uh, it's this deep end cut. So they're, they're, Myers has run this route over and over again. He's running at about 12 yards and hits it right out of the break, uh, crossing, he's dove and caught it, he's caught it, snatched it. There's been sort of some thematic stuff. That it's like you kind of find out, like, hey, this is what this guy does really well. And that's actually not a route that a lot of guys kill on on, the, on this particular roster. I mean, Gordon ran some of that last year. Uh, Jules will run the the deep overs and some sort of crossing routes, but this is like a, it's just like a route that I keep seeing the guy catch over and over again. It's like, it's like the old Brady thing with, with uh, Bledsoe years and years ago. He's like, what do you like? What's the one I like? And this is like, okay, that's the one he likes. And he just keeps going back to him and that, not Tom, but at least to Myers. So beyond just who will be in and when, I think it's like, okay, there's a concept that this guy excels at. There's something where he could really be used. Does it net out at 80, 60, 40, 20? Shit, I don't know. I mean, we'll, we'll figure that stuff out later. But it's kind of good to know that you have a little different kind of player. And uh, I'm, I'm going to pivot here in a second, but I wanted to apologize to both these guys off the top. And you're not going to obviously get this through on a, on a podcast. But I hope the sound is okay for you guys. We're working off one mic. We're kind of, this is first, you know, first show kind of working through stuff. I, uh, I went with a, a pot of coffee, uh, morning cigar, and these honey mustard pretzels today. So I'm really bombing on these guys a little bit. This is a little, it's a little bit uncomfortable because we're working off the same mic, kind of like a boy band, passing it back and forth between the three of us. So I just, if you feel like when I pitch it to these guys, there's a little agitation in their voice, it's because they're getting a little of this dragon air. You are having an aggressive Monday, man. <laughs> some people, some people want to back into the start of their work week, and, and some people just want to have a morning cigar and, and some some honey pretzels. Uh, I think I want to get back to Myers real quick before we move on from that. I like Myers. He had, I mean, there, part of it, like Nick was saying, market correction, and yeah, we we're not going to expect Jacoby Myers just because he led the team in, in connections with Brady over the summer to do the same thing in the regular season. He's a UDFA. He's going to come back to earth. But he is an intriguing piece. The other part of that preseason game, he only got three series with Brady, and then he had a, a pretty solid rest of the night with Stidham. Mm -hmm. That part doesn't necessarily mean that, okay, all of a sudden everything's going to be fine with Brady the next time they step yeah. out. But how often do you see Julian Edelman not have a catch through three series right. and maybe two drops, and then all of a sudden he blows up? I mean, Malcolm Mitchell had one catch in the first three quarters of Super Bowl 51, and then I think it was six for like 90 or whatever the rest of the way. So Jacoby Myers also didn't have that chance to kind of work his way through it. He got three series. He was probably pressing a little bit, especially after the first one. And then the second one. And then he had the penalty. And then Brady chews him out. And then he chews him out again. I mean, he's probably sitting on the sideline like, wow, I suck. This is the worst thing ever. So, like, put yourself in his shoes. I'm not worried about Myers over the long haul. I think it was just three tough series. 
and he's going to get his chance to shine, I'm sure, plenty of times throughout the regular season. So to put a bow, a bow on the sort of receiver thing and move on to some other groups, uh, one thing I think to always keep in mind is the sort of bizarre nature of this particular camp relative to other ones Tom's had. I mean, he's had the camps where, hey, Julian's going to be suspended the first four. So, you know, what amount of work are they going to do with one another? Is it going to be more than usual just to sort of get him that work because he's going to be back for a month later? There's been other camps where, you know, come and go. Someone is not quite available. Gronk's completely unavailable. And then you walk in week one and he's an eight-target guy. So this is a weird one in that you could walk out in your first three wide receiver set with Julian potentially Demarius and Josh. So we have no clue. You know, like Jacoby's an awesome story, and I think he's certainly going to be a part of this. It's really cool. And and Nikhil Harry, again, he's away from our eyes. What if he walks out and he's full go? And he's a, he's a six-target guy. So I, I think beyond just, you know, media intrigue and us talking about it, think about game planning. If you're, the, if you're the Steelers and you're coming up with a game plan that has any kind of shift focus or doubling element or any kind of help thing relative to one particular person, maybe all they're doing is watching Chiefs and Rams film about Julian and how to take away a guy who keeps catching 10 balls every game. I mean, like, that might be the only thing to pre-game plan for because the rest of this stuff isn't on tape. Well, you know what, what I think is funny since you mentioned the Steelers? I mean, we're sitting here uh, all summer long, and I think the biggest question mark, especially the first four weeks of the season, is what in the world are they going to do with tight ends? I mean, Brady has, at times, virtually ignored tight ends not named Ben Watson. And they've got now Lance Kendrick suspended. Who knows if he was actually going to make the team anyway. But, you know, you're looking at week one and saying Ryan Izzo and maybe Matt Lacoste, if he's healthy, are your two tight ends. Who knows if they even carry a third. And it's like, oh my goodness, what is going to happen? But Mike Tomlin has this amazing history of just (laughs) ignoring tight ends and letting them run free down the field. He's just like, guys, you know what? Don't worry about number 87. He's never done anything before. And we're going to be sitting there at the end of that week one game against the Steelers, and we're going to watch like Matt Lacoste catch three touchdown passes. And it's going to be like, well, typical Steelers. I, mean, I had to Google this really quick, Nick. Sorry. I, I was just, I was unsure if Zach Sudfeld was a, was currently a free agent because that might could come up. You know, I'm, I'm like, look on the street. No, is he? Is he? A, no. He's a former tight end. Sorry. Not in the league. Unfortunately, get your hopes down. Go ahead. Sorry, Nick. I mean, that, that's interesting. They, you know, that, that's Tomlin's history because one of the things they could do with all these big dudes too, especially late in games, four-minute situations, two-minute situations, you go four wide, five wide even, yeah. and, and you pull out that wrinkle and you got all these six-foot-three, six-foot-two dudes. And if, if there's no really threat of running and, you you know, you're just throwing anyhow, maybe that's the way to go about it. But, you know, schematically, if they're just going to let pre-releases go the whole time, you know, Matt Lacoste, he describes himself as a utility man, but, like, maybe he's this <laughs> breakout player and he, he's the, the big hype of the early season. But... You know, I would expect them to have their eyes open somewhere. I, I don't think you can go forward with just what they have at, at tight end. I, I don't know about you guys, but you look at it, and that's really the one scary trouble area of the whole team everywhere else. Like, they're suddenly stacked. Like, all the wide receivers talk, we look pretty stupid for, like, being worried about that for, for the whole summer because it kind of just took care of itself. Even with Ben Watson, I don't know if tight end's taking care of itself. He looks old. He's not moving well. He didn't do a whole lot last year. He got replaced by a former basketball player, essentially, in the Saints offense because – he was fading and couldn't get it done. So 
you know, that that's somewhere make a trade, have your eyes open. But I do think something has to happen. There. So my quick thought, and I want to flip to the ball here, so we don't eat up the whole show on offense, because that would be terrible, guys. You can't do that. Um, I'm I'm interested. I'm less interested in the tight end spot, not because I don't think you make some valid points about that. It's it's thinner than I think what we're used to the position being. I think it just becomes a de-emphasized position. I think it becomes okay. a block. I think it becomes a blocking position. I think it's a, in any offense not named New England or maybe Kansas City. Usually the tight end is is a super duper complimentary piece. I mean he's he's the U, he's the the backup fullback, he's not necessarily the point of attack. I mean it's we're not in a, in an era where there are really that many point of attack tight ends left out there for blocking do, purposes. Do you really have a guy that you feel good that like if there's a major mismatch that you can at least exploit that major mismatch? Like I don't know if they even have that like guy. A two, you got to have somebody competent at least, I think. You basically have well so we'll, we'll back up here a little bit. They're an under center uh Fullback in the backfield, presumably with James, kind of offense a lot lately, that has the ability at any given series to put Tom with the gun and take the tight ends out of the game. So I think the tight end that catches balls this year is the guy that's in location. So he's, he's attached to the formation. He's got his hands down. He's playing good old regular tight end. And he catches it off play action. I mean, he's going to sneak in a two or a three target a game kind of thing after a ball gets stuck in... James White or or Sony Michelle's gut pulled out and is dumped at eight yards. Like I, I you know, or the 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 play action fake into the flat. Like that, it's not going to be. Hey, let's drop back, extend the tight end. Wow, look at that matchup we got. Matt Lacosta's winning this time. I just feel like that your tight end targets. There might be a guy on the team that catches twenty five balls this year, and but it's it's a complimentary issue. He might even catch a touchdown or two as pulled out of his, his gut on a on a real hard sell run action thing in the red zone. It might be that, but I'm just saying if you can get like a slight upgrade somewhere in a trade, you know, off the waivers, whatever it is, like they should have their eyes open. It's by far like the one position that's not set at all. And if you can make a minor upgrade, great. They aren't going to go out and get you know. Rob Gronkowski, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like the offense does have to change, but the guys they have, it's just you could upgrade theoretically, and there probably is going to be someone that hits the street that, that they do take a look at. Well, I think the Colts have a couple extra ones, and we know Bill Belichick wasn't really paying attention to Andrew Luck in Indianapolis, <laughs> but there, I think, are about 58 other guys that Belichick, if the math is right, was staring at in Indianapolis, and maybe, maybe one of those tight ends was one of them. All right, so let's head over to the other side of the ball. Um, this, to me, has been one of the weirder camps for, for trying to track defense, and obviously that's kind of my interest area uh, first and foremost because it's been – I think we've done these camps, guys, in years past where we've looked at, uh, oh, is it going to be 3-4 four, or 4-3 four, this year? Oh, is it they're leading with nickel. Now, who's the, the third guy on the field? And it's sort of always been this, like, scheme-focused thing. I think I've never had a camp and, and calling these preseason games where I thought, it kind of doesn't matter because here's the here's the reality of this new roster. It's so freaking deep. And, and I don't say just necessarily deep with how good they are. It's like at each position group, from the front group with Michael Bennett, from the mid group with like your Hightowers and Van Noys, and, and the back group with, you know, either of the, either the McCordys or, you know, any even Patrick Chung, guys who have such incredible versatility, it makes it really, really difficult to guess what they'll be in because it kind of sort of doesn't matter. Like, is it nickel or regular? Well, that same guy plays in both groupings, and now he's down the play before he was back. Same with the rush, edge rush guys. You know, they were so freaking deep with, you know, some guys we might walk out here in week one, and it might be Dante Hightower and Van Noy actually off the edge as opposed to playing inside. And we spent all camp watching John Simon and, and uh, you know, Chase Winovich. And, uh, well, Shirley Calhoun was doing well at, before he got banked up. And, uh, you know, Derek Rivers and all those guys before the injuries. But it looks like there's six, maybe even seven bodies who could potentially be on the edge. And if you don't know who's going to be on the edge, well, what, what are we talking about with scheme? 
it's been super fascinating to me, really, because like the way they approach at the edge rush, I think is different than really any team in the NFL. Other teams are going to go out and spend a million billion dollars on Trey Flowers, and they're going to go get Kyle Van Noy and a bunch of other guys that they can create pressure with and bring them from everywhere. And it it makes it so unpredictable. I mean, Deron Harmon's almost a borderline pressure player the way they've been using them throughout the preseason. It's just they can bring it from everywhere and. It just seems like, you know, that that's another way that they've exploited the market while everybody else is is placing so much value on edge rushers. They'll go get a linebacker and find a way to maximize this pass rush. And, you know, they'll get three of them and they'll throw them out there and bring them from everywhere. And it, it's just really unique. And you can even see this in the preseason without, like, scheming. Like, they're confusing Cam Newton. They're keeping Cam Newton in the pocket by having all these guys that can come in. Well, everybody else, you know, has to come up with a crush rush. And they got to be really careful about, you know not getting too wide in their rush. And it's just like the Patriots have all these dudes that are just <laughs> solid rushers, fundamentally sound. They're coming from everywhere, and they, they're keeping them in there. They're also they're versatile, and, and that's so interchangeable. Hightower, Van Noy, Jamie Collins, those guys can play basically anywhere along the second level or on the edge. There was a snap on third and intermediate against the Panthers where those three linebackers, plus Chase Winovich and Michael Bennett, were all in the line of scrimmage. Yeah. And that sort of blends in some of the playground defense that they had at times last year that I'm sure they're going to continue to mix in uh, at times this year. I, I want to ask Matt, I'm going to put you on the spot real quick here. The The example I always think of is 2011 when we watch all the training camp and then Belichick shuts the doors to practice for basically the final three weeks of the summer, the final two weeks of the summer and the first week of the regular season. So we're blind to everything that's happening. And then he puts a guy like Ross I. Dowling out there in week one in Miami as a starting cornerback out of nowhere. Do you have any like favorite stories of things that you remember sort of changing or, or just, you know, I'm, I'm sure you guys aren't at practice being like, oh, look, it's the reporters up there. They're so <laughs> cool. We want to be just like them. But then when they, they shut us out of it, like anything that sort of changed drastically that you guys unveiled or were excited about in week one. So knowing that this is a you know an athletic show and you guys are all presumably reading the the content that each of the three of us put out anyhow, I had actually toyed around with a column that was going to sort of address this that would show you that would and I wondered if it might get a little too in the weeds and be too much to so I'm glad we kind of can talk about it as opposed to maybe trying to diagram it and do videos and stuff in a column. And, and what this would be is really showing the stark difference between what it is you saw in the preseason and then what it is in those week one, week two, week three, when they're able to game plan and the dramatic difference between what's happening when a game plan is happening, when it's just, here's our random call, here's their random call, and they're matted against one another and we'll see what happens. Uh, game plan is, is it's a game plan league. I know that sounds very trite and you probably all heard that many, many times. But what that really means is that they're, they're going and studying the other team they're making presumptions. This is where analytics is is. Sorry to report this, but it's not new. It's it's you know it's like uh, I I don't know. It's something that when I came to the league in two thousand, we were doing analytics. Like it was just a uh, not given that word. And what it simply means is we're doing we're doing heavy numerical tendency stuff, but it's based upon serious filtering. It's not the you know the the stat head sites where it's just raw and big and wide umbrella stuff. It's more based upon the personnel grouping, uh, who's in that personnel grouping, uh, the down and distance it's paired with, the time and situation of the game. We have you know a heavily filtered thing of maybe twenty different scenarios, and where we can walk in with either a wristband or some sort of thing that we've studied for the week, where it tells you something with a degree of certainty. Are we, do we feel good enough at sixty eight percent to say, hey? 
Razai or whatever would be the matchup we want against that guy because we think we're going to get this and Razai's good at enough at this. We'll probably get it and he can handle that. It, it's that goofy kind of stuff. A lot of it that goes in, uh, on a, outside of the player's eyes. But what we typically get is a sheet. You know, you get this the sheet that says, hey, it, 84% of the time and 12 personnel at plus 30, this is a good, it's really highly likely that this is going to happen. And then based upon that, you make a call. And that call has a tag or some little unique element to it that none of the preseason calls have. So the difference between regular season and preseason is preseason is, you know, a front, a coverage, you know, say 3-4 or 4-3 or under or over or whatever, some sort of nickel call and cover two behind it. You know, like it's just that. And everyone aligns and let's see how their skills match up. And then as we did see in the Carolina game this year, the third preseason game, they did have one series where they came out and they went pressure package. And it's, you know, that's another part of the playbook. But the thing about pressure package there is it's not built like, so say you're, you're the Steelers and, you, and Bill has a history. He knows their coordinators. He obviously knows the head coach. He knows their quarterback. And they have a a percentage history that they know they want to hit on uh, based upon the protections they give Ben if they end up in a certain uh, grouping or whatever. Things that didn't work against them the last time they played. So those are the things that get done as soon as this week one thing happens. The rest of this, just think of it as like, you know, a tackling combine <laughs> where we don't have to choose to draft them. We've already drafted them. We're trying to evaluate how to use them. I think uh, we don't want to completely ignore the preseason finale. So, you know, we don't need to also dissect the Giants or whichever quarterback Giants fans love or hate this week or anything <laughs> like that. I think, let's just think about one thing that you're looking forward to uh, watching in some capacity on, on Thursday night. I'll start with Isaiah Wynn. I don't know if he's going to play or not. I mean, they might just hold him back because they're probably going to hold a lot of key guys back. But the w reason why I'm thinking about Wynn is because he had, what, 19 snaps in his first preseason game. I think it was about 25 to 28 in the second preseason game that he played in. So is he going to continue to gradually climb that ladder? Is he going to get into the 30s, even if it's for the back, you know, the rest of the backup offense or anything along those lines? Because you're going into week one, this is a guy who's had, at this point, three quality weeks of practice, and it looks like they're probably going to have to use a rotation at left tackle at least the first couple weeks of the season. I'm just throwing that against the wall because Belichick and Skarnecchia have used a tackle rotation in the past, and you wonder if Wynn can go out there and, and play a full 100% of the snaps against the Steelers and then the, you know, the following week down in, in the Miami Heat. So what does Wynn look like if he plays? I mean, physically, in terms of performance, we know he's the real deal. But how many more snaps is he going to get if they allow him to go out there? Well, first and foremost, I'm like 11 years old. So when Jeff says, where will Wynn and it's Jeff Howe saying it like it's like the who's on first shit, and I can't I can't concentrate. So when Jeff Jeff starts talking about when, how, when, where, I, I it really is confusing. I'm just kidding. It's been a long day. It's Monday, like you said. So no, I think he does bring up a, a very interesting point, and one of the things that I'm interested in, and I, I take this from a, like a player standpoint, it, that. When you know you have a teammate alongside of you that's really, really talented, talented like Wynn, but you haven't seen him log a lot of time. I mean, you even since that with, with Brady has, has talked about the stuff with this since I've been a media member and not playing about, you know, you do have to get a certain trust level with a certain player. You count that with a receiver, um, and I can kind of drop a little... And this isn't, you know, it's just the feeling I got. So the feeling I got from Tom is that he's incredibly enthused 
with what he's seen from Demarius Thomas. And I actually didn't expect to get that from him. I was I was expecting, you know, this is like a Reggie Wayne, uh, Joey Galloway kind of situation. Maybe there's something there, maybe there's not. We will see. Um, not as if there were any promises about this or anything, but there was a glint, and he talked about him enthusiastically as he ran through the list of all the other guys. But he wasn't a throwaway. And you know, we all know his locker's next to his and those kind of things. So I, I use that example similar to the win one where – it's great to – I mean, I love watching win. I literally think this guy's going to be an all-pro someday. I think his feet are so freaking good. His punch is so good. He anchors so well. He's a great in space guy, although he did blow a couple of screen 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 things out in space, which is like, oh, it's smaller tackle. Should be great in space. He missed a couple. I think it's it's learning. Early time, it, yeah. It's, yeah. It just seemed like it was moving too fast from right there. He looked at the guy, whiffed, and then yeah. it was over. So there is a learning element there, but all I'll say is I was trying to connect him to Demarius as guys that – Tom probably knows he needs to see more out of. And, and to your idea of that maybe it's a rotational thing, I think it, I had not thought about that until you brought it up. But I don't think that's a terrible idea because you start looking at, you know, roster preservation. Where are we going to be in December? It's not, hey, could you handle 65 today? Maybe. Is it? Does that serve us best? I don't know. So it just depends on their amount of faith that they get them in these couple weeks where the doors are shut to us. Do you guys think that – Backup quarterback still up in the air going into this fourth game. Or do you think they know what they're doing? Is there anything to glean if Hoyer goes out and plays the whole game, Sidham goes out and plays the whole game, or if they go half and half? Is it is it a competition, or do you think it's already in the books? They've seen what they need to see from Stidham, and maybe that's what last week was was getting that factor fiction, or or is it still up in the air? I think Belichick knows what he wants to do. I just have no idea what Belichick wants to do. Right. So <laughs> it's like I, it's one of. I mean, I wrote whatever, Friday or Saturday, whenever it ran, there were, there are six different scenarios that Belichick could be considering here. One of the, two of them are very easy. One of them is, okay, Stidham's the real deal. He's the guy, and Belichick only wants to keep two quarterbacks. Bang, you cut Hoyer, it's very easy. Two is, they love Hoyer, they're not getting rid of him, it doesn't matter what we're reading into it. And then the next handful are, Okay, what do you do in the situation where Tom Brady all of a sudden has to... You know, Tom Brady's beaten a million injuries over the course of his career. You can't necessarily run from the concussion spotter. So what happens if he takes a head, head shot and has to go into the concussion protocol for a quarter, Seriously. the rest of the game? I mean, shoot, a month? You, you just never know how you can go out and beat something like that. Or what do you do if, if Brady has a, a situation where he's going to miss like six weeks? Because realistically, he's not going to miss two to four weeks from any injury. He's overcome plenty of those so I don't think you have to worry about the short term it's just whichever quarterback you turn it over to if Brady goes down for any amount of time who's the guy that's going to give you the best chance to tread water and then you got to look at the long-term development of a guy like Stidham too I mean if Brady has a catastrophic injury and you've got to start to figure out okay is this how, how much is this going to impact the current season but how much is it also going to impact your long-term evaluation of a guy like Stidham I mean there's no uh, price, the value that you could get out of giving Stidham a full season or 10 games or whatever it happens to be, if he's put in a situation where he has to finish out the season, might be more advantageous than giving a guy like Hoyer uh, the ball the rest of the way. So there's just, there's so much. But I would guarantee that Belichick went into week three in that Panthers game knowing exactly what he's going to do with the quarterback spot. I just don't know. I was under the impression that if Stidham had knocked it out of the park against the Panthers, 
he could maybe push Brian off the roster. And, you know, I always have to do this full disclosure, friend of Brian, love him a lot. You know, like he's a, he's a good dude. I, as a vet, I kind of hope for him that he's on the roster. So maybe that, that poisons and biases me to be able to talk about it. But one of the things I would say, if, if I had a GM job on the line and I had to, well, we don't in this situation because Bill's a GM, but if I were evaluating that particular spot, uh, I would be terrified of sticking Stidham in there right now because I, I think he's, I think he's just, I think he's stat sheet lucky so far. He's got a cannon. He has a nice release. He reads well. He moves well. He could have six interceptions yeah. right now, and he does not. And honestly, what would the story be? How would we be? I, I think you have to do this objectively and say, how would I describe Jared Stidham if those six balls had been caught? Because really, he did nothing different than if they had been caught. So if they were caught. Would that change your decision? Because it couldn't, because what he did wouldn't have changed. So I just always think that, and again, it doesn't it doesn't diminish the shine on what he could potentially be. I think we can all see that. This guy's got it. But he is he's, he's raw, he's mistake-prone against second and third string guys, and the scenario there is plug him into things where it's become more complex, so there's going to be presumably more of those mistakes. So I'll, I'll tie this up at the end. My, my thought with Brian... And, and where I feel like he's he's actually really helpful here to this particular roster. And this is me, again, sort of projecting and guessing a little on, a little on how Bill thinks. Bill's here to win championships. And, and I don't think that he's of the mind that let's develop a guy. I don't think Michael Bennett was brought in here to develop a guy. I think he, they're of the mind that, and, you know, as fans and people that cover this team, you all presume that, oh, Brady's gone, it's over. I don't think they think that way. Nick Foles won a Super Bowl. I mean, they build a roster to win Super Bowls. I mean, obviously, anyone would prefer to have Tom over anyone else. But if you don't have him, this isn't the kind of place to tuck tail and start developing people. I really think it's Brian Hoyer had never will have never had the collection of talent around him and coaching talent at the time where he would be inserted. So it may go quite well. I mean, as good as you could get with a full situation in, in another place. So I just tend to think that he's the kind of guy you want there. Don't spoil Stidham early with a you know a Peterman kind of outing that you know he's just not quite ready for. Because uh, I think he could be a really good player someday. So do you, do you think you know going back to Mallet, Garoppolo, Jacoby Brissett, and now Stidham, that was just taking advantage of a guy that was maybe there and then developing him, so trade him for future assets. Like you don't think that the intent was to maybe develop and then if Tom goes down, you have the next guy ready to step up. I think it was a shot in the dark, honestly. I think it was okay. You have to draft a quarterback. Who's the best one available? They didn't go into the draft. Just look at their actions. They did not go into the draft thinking Jarrett Stidham is the future Tom Brady. Right. Otherwise, it wouldn't have taken them until their 10th shot on the clock to draft well, him. Let's I say think Jimmy, just, though. Like, I'm just kind of the point of like they aren't here to develop guys and, and you know bring someone up. Like Jimmy G seemed like someone that they definitely looked at as a successor. And Bill's comments right after that draft, I right. think, kind of alluded to that, too, that there was a clock on Brady. And nobody thought he was going to last until 42. But, I mean, is, is Stidham just probably a shot in the dark time? Yeah, I think it's sort of like Etling, just a better version of Etling. You just <laughs> look, they didn't draft Danny Etling thinking he was going to be Jerry even, Rice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Right. He's now, <laughs> is he going to replace Julio Jones down in Atlanta now? Steve Largent. It's, uh, I think they're just at a point where if you're not going to take a guy in the first round or even the second round, you just got to take one somewhere and hope that he blows you away the way I think Stidham sort of has. I want to just put a different spin on what you were talking about, Matt. I did just check the internet. There is enough space for me to kind of relay one more minute of Stidham talk here. But <laughs> there's... it. All right. Everything you said about Stidham is fair. Some of those balls could have been intercepted, maybe should have been intercepted. But look at the amount of heat that he has taken behind that backup offensive line. And then think about the clean pocket that Brady had for the vast duration of his three series last week. That's a damn good starting offensive line that he has. Maybe... 
it's certainly a top five offensive line in the NFL. Maybe they go down as the best at the end of the year. Who knows? What could Stidham do behind that line, throwing to the skill guys that he could potentially have if, if they are all as good as we think that they have the possibility of being? So, yeah, I mean, Belichick could be looking at it from that perspective, too. Yeah, if, if he's sitting there behind the backup offensive line that we saw last week and he's getting his head kicked in play after play after play, you're going to be more mistake-prone and you're not going to have guys you're throwing to who are going to get a chance to you know, get as open as you would have liked or desired them to be. So sort of just look at it from a, maybe a different perspective. Yeah, the middle of that line, too, is just it's brutal. It's brutal. Ferentz might be... You know, I don't want to bag on anybody, but he's among probably one of the worst players on the team through three preseason games. I won't say that. <laughs> Yelda, that was Nick. Yelda's, Yelda's been really bad. Dan Skipper has is, is not been good. Like, three-fourths of that line is terrible. Gauthier has been okay. You know, it it has not been good. And I would say for, for Stidham, too, the knock on him was that he couldn't take heat, and he has stood it in heat, stared it down. I think he's been very impressive overall. I do agree, though. There were a couple plays that could have been picked. There were two in this last game. I actually thought this last game was probably his worst one out of, out of all of his performances. And he could have knocked down the door and, you know, sent Hoyer on his way by, by having a lights-out game. And I think he did leave a little bit of meat on the bone. But overall, it's, it's been very impressive to me. So I, I, the one thing I would say about – I actually had the opposite. We, we spent a lot of time on this uh, in the Detroit game, how incredibly clean the – it was a great backup day for the offensive line. Detroit, not yeah. so much against – Yeah, this last game was real Yeah, bad. Detroit stood him when he, we all became aware of, hey, this guy's really good. Like, he stood there untouched. I actually thought his Detroit stat sheet's going to be – unnecessarily pumped up because it's less pressure than you would get in, in a regular game. But independent of that, I guess we'll see which way they go. So we got to wrap this show up, guys, because these two guys, they have a J-O-B. They have to go and do availabilities and talk to players and then bring it back and talk to all of you. So we're very excited. Just want to say thank you. Uh, we're, we're excited for the show. Check us out throughout the year. Razor Show, as I mentioned. Uh, Jeff's baby. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and that's it for this show. Tune in again. Thanks for Nick Underhill, Jeff Hall, I'm Matt Chatham. And that's my dog Paco in the back. I don't know if you can hear that jingly toy. We're going to have to do something about that. Paco was scratching his nethers and making noise, and it may have come through the mic. Apologies. Apologies.